gracious and loving God, we thank you for bringing us safely to a new week. We pray that you would preserve us with your grace, that we may remain faithful and steadfast in our faith. And we ask that as we study the book of Hebrews today, we'd learn something new about the Christian life and about who we are and how we can live faithfully in this world. It's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say that is hard to explain, since you have become dull in understanding. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. What a passage. So we start off at the end of chapter four, being reminded that Jesus is a great high priest. And as this unfolds, we're kind of part of the Jesus is superior to litany. At first, he is superior to the angels. Jesus is said to be superior to Moses. And now uh, the author is setting up how the great high priest is superior to uh, the priesthood that began with Aaron, Moses's brother, where sacrifices were offered. And just a reminder that whenever we talk about Jesus being superior to, we have to be really, really careful that we're not uh, using, you know, supersessionist language or uh, Jesus replaces language, but we use fulfillment language. And we are mindful that this language kind of is birthed in a community of Jews who are trying to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's scripture 
and thus different from what they might be used to. So Jesus is the great high priest, and as such, we are to hold fast to our confession. This is really what the author of Hebrews is asking the community to do when he says, let's run with perseverance the race set before us. That race is ultimately about clinging to a confession. We do not hold fast to a particular moral code. We don't hold fast to our belief that if we try harder, we can change ourselves or change the world. What we do is we hold fast first and foremost to our confession that we have in Jesus a great high priest, one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so the book of Hebrews, you know, it kind of goes back and forth at times, but it's not primarily a, you are strong, you can do this, try harder sermon. It's really grounded in an understanding that we need someone who understands us and more specifically understands our weakness and our fragility. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the high priest who understands that from the inside out. The idea is that Jesus actually knows what it's like to walk not in humanity's shoes, like the the human experience, but to walk in your shoes, to walk in Jackie's shoes, in Barbara's shoes, in John's shoes, that somehow the mystery of this high priest is that he knows our life even better than we are, that he has been tested as we are. The one difference is he never succumbed to sin. And so as a result, verse 16, we are told to approach the throne of grace with boldness, and that when we approach the throne of grace, what we receive from God is mercy. And so two things I want to point out. One is just this boldness that is to be part of the Christian life, not arrogance, right? Arrogance has no humility in it, but boldness is a confidence that's grounded in humility uh, that knows who God is and knows that we're welcome in God's presence. Please understand it's called a throne of grace. It's not a throne of condemnation. It is not a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of authority. It's a throne of grace that whenever you go in God's presence, what you always receive is mercy, and we're invited to go there as much as we need and to go with confidence. This is reflected in our liturgy right after the great Thanksgiving when the celebrant says, we are bold to say our Father who art in heaven. There is a boldness with which we, mere sinful mortals, call God our Father and Jesus our brother. And the author of Hebrews is really helping us tap into that boldness, not because we're good, but because God is, and because God has offered us access to the throne of grace. At the beginning of chapter five, there is this differentiation described between high priests chosen from mortals and the sort of priest Jesus is. The high priest chosen from mortals is there to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this, of course, is meant to be juxtaposed with Jesus, who offered one gift, one sacrifice for the whole sin of the world. And the author of Hebrews will get into this a little bit later, but high priests chosen from among mortals, they they do the same sacrifices time and time again, because the moment there is a cleansing, there is a new transgression, and another sacrifice has to be offered. 
This is not how things work with Jesus, according to the author of Hebrews. And in the same way, the author reminds us that priests chosen from among mortals, they don't take that honor themselves, but they are called and chosen. And in the same way, Jesus, the son of God, was chosen by God to live into this role as high priest. But then we're told something very curious, and that Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, I'm going to read a little bit about him here in a bit, but he is a mysterious figure who appears in Genesis chapter 14. And so for those of you who studied Genesis 1 through 11 with me, you know that this is really the prehistory of Israel, that the story of Israel begins in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abram. And so really three chapters into that story, before there's the Exodus, before Isaac and Jacob and Joseph come along, before Moses and Aaron come along, we actually meet a priest by the name of Melchizedek. And so this prefigures and comes before the priesthood according to Aaron, Moses's brother. And Melchizedek meets Abraham in a very specific situation. Abraham's nephew Lot has been kidnapped. Okay, there's these warring kings and they're all fighting. And Abram's nephew Lot gets kidnapped. And so Abram says, I've got to go rescue my family member from slavery. I've got to go do battle and bring back my family member from being enslaved, from being kidnapped. And so uh, Abram does. And this is what the book of Genesis says, and I'm going to read it beginning in Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. Okay, so that's the passage. So what I'd say about that is that the book of Hebrews likens Jesus to this mysterious king of peace or king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. It's also prefiguring Jerusalem, right? the city of peace. So the king of Jerusalem, the king of the city of David, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, who comes before all that, in the same way that the author of Hebrews suggests that Jesus, as the exact imprint of God's very being, comes before the creation of the world, right? This prefiguring king of righteousness, king of peace, shows up to bless a man who rescues another man from slavery, his family member. And then that exodus, that freedom is celebrated with what? With bread and wine. And so just kind of think about this. You have this instance where two chapters into Israel's story, there is a rescue from slavery, a defeat of evil kings, 
family members are brought home safe, freedom is proclaimed, and then here comes the king of righteousness, the king of peace, to memorialize that, to celebrate it with bread and wine. My hope is that that rings a bell. My hope is that this feels very similar to what we do on Sunday morning. And you find it all there in Genesis chapter 14. And basically what the author of Hebrews says is, that's the sort of priest Jesus is. The sort of priest who rescues us from slavery and offers bread and wine and thanksgiving to God eternally for that act. So we'll have some conversation about that. In Hebrews 5, 7, we are reminded that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up loud prayers and supplications. We're told that though a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, and that having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Two things really stand out for me here. One is Jesus's humanity, offering loud prayers and supplications and being heard because of his reverent submission, yet still dying on a cross. It really brings to mind Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. So you have a very human Jesus being obedient, even amidst anguish, and doing that in solidarity with us. But then second, this idea of being the source of eternal salvation for all, it's a very clear theological claim the author is making. He's not just trying to say that, you know, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the priesthood because it's not about being better than. It's about who Jesus is. No, Jesus is the source of salvation for all of us and all angels and Moses and the old covenant. All that was meant to do was to point us to the God who saves. That's what religion does. It points us to the God who saves. And so here, Jesus is not yet another religious figure that points us to the God who saves. Rather, he is the God who saves. Final thing I want to say is that the end of chapter five kind of takes a snarky, moralistic tone. It says, you have become dull and understanding for though by this time you ought to be teachers you still need someone to teach you the basic oracles of God. You still need milk, but solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained to distinguish good from evil. We can hear this in a lot of different ways, but I choose to hear this through a lens of grace, of a pastor speaking a, a difficult but truthful, kind word to his congregation, wanting them to grow up, and uh, as a way of reminding us that that drinking milk is good, but why just drink milk if you can also have a steak, vegetables, a roll, and a glass of wine on the side? I mean, you know, let's have the full meal here. And uh, I, I hear this as an invitation for us to have the full meal. And that full meal is tied to obedience, right? There's that line of Jesus is the source of salvation for all who obey. I don't read that as a moralistic, if you obey, then you'll be saved as so much as a description of what a saved life looks like. The more we know that salvation, the more we are living obedient lives. And that obedience is the full meal. It's not just about saying, ah, oh, Jesus has forgiven me, so I'm gonna go do the same stupid things I did the last 20 years. It's about trying to grow up. And of course, whenever we fail, we always get to approach the throne of grace. 
But I, I think that what the author of Hebrews is getting at is that there's an invitation to go deeper and an invitation for a much richer experience of the Christian life. 